This is Extraordinary, a podcast where we have an honest chat and a good laugh about what it's like to live with a disability. You'll hear about the unique challenges we encounter, the funny situations we face, and learn what it's like to be in our shoes. I'm your host, Oliver Hunter. I'm a stand-up comedian who actually can't stand up, and I've been cracking jokes about living with a disability for years. Today, we're chatting to Belinda Aiken. Belinda has worked professionally as an actor and also works within the accessible housing sector. Her own experience with disability has helped support others in their housing journey. In this episode, you hear about Belinda's experience in the screen industry, the importance of providing independent living solutions, and Belinda's thoughts on why language matters. Let's get into it. Thanks for joining us, Belinda. It's a great to have you here and a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. I guess I'll start with the first question. What would you like people to know about you? You know what? I've never ever thought about what I'd want people to know about me. I guess that I'm just a regular everyday person. I think that's something that people without disability, I guess, sometimes get a little bit nervous around people with disability. And with me, there's no need to do that. Usually it's probably me being more nervous than anything. And that I just like us doing everyday things. I work, I act, which I guess sometimes it's not really an everyday thing. That's pretty cool. I feel like you want people to know that about you, that you're... Yeah, 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 definitely. That I do like people to know that I I do like doing my acting. Obviously, I haven't done much of it in the last six months or so which is unfortunate, but that's just the way life is at the moment. But I love doing my acting, done it for quite a few years now, and yeah, hopefully get to do it a little bit more. Yeah, well, hopefully we can keep opening up and stay open and there's more opportunities out there to act. I guess I'll, I'll start there then. So you started acting. So what drew you into that industry of entertainment and acting? What took you to that place that you wanted to do that? I guess it started... Years ago when I was at school, primary school, I did a show when I was probably about 10, 11, maybe 12, around 11, and I loved it. It was a stage show that we did, and it was amazing for me. I was a very shy child, and I guess I still am a bit shy, but doing that performance just took me away from that. You get lost in a character. You get lost in what you're doing, and it's just, I think if anyone is an actor listening to this probably knows what that feels like. Mm-hmm. So I and I did drama at school. Then I actually went to university. This is a funny story. I kind of went to university and I did a commerce course. So it was just an everyday business course. I majored in sport management because I did love sport as well. Could never play it because I'm my physicality, I just can't play sports. I don't have the strength. So I thought, I'll just go into the admin side of sport. Did the course, finished, graduated from uni. Had my graduation ceremony up on a stage in, I went to Deakin, so it was in Geelong. I was looking out on this stage, seeing all the people in the audience. And they, oh, this is where I belong. I just love being on stage. This is the moment. This is what I want to do. It's like a light bulb moment. And then when um, enrolled in acting school, so the university degree sort of went to the back a little bit and I went through acting school. So it was just that moment on the graduation ceremony on the stage, looking out with the lights and the audience, like, oh, yes, 
similar to you, I do a bit of stand-up comedy. I don't think there's any better feeling when I get on stage and, and get a few laughs or the set's going well and the audience are loving it. There's just that feeling of like, yeah, well, it's arguably one of the best feelings. I got the bug as well when I did my first gig and it went all right. And then I sort of got off stage and one of the more senior comics that were on that night, the headliner, he looked at me and he said, you've got it. As in the bug of comedy and performing, he goes, I can see in your eye no matter how bad it could get from performing because it can get plenty of bad gigs out there for comedy and I'm sure acting. But he said to me, yep, you've got it. And he goes, you'll never quit now. I always think about that. So when you went to you went to acting school, you enrolled, as you said, after your commerce degree. Was there any apprehension having your disability to go in to acting school and to pursue that dream? Yeah, there was a lot of apprehension because even without being disabled, it's not a very stable career because you're just waiting for the next gig and it may not come. So even with not being disabled, that can be a thing. So, yeah, I had that apprehension. I, of course, was the only disabled student at the school. So there was that to deal with as well. But I, I loved doing the school work, the, the classes I did. I learned a lot. I got my first agent while I was still studying there. And I'm Janine. Love her so much if she's listening to this. Yeah, so there was that apprehension. I pushed through it and kept going. Not that it kind of didn't lead to anything for a long time, but as we're talking here about the late 90s, early 2000s, it wasn't a great time to be a disabled actor because there just wasn't nothing. There was nothing going on. I did a couple of short films, things like that. I did extra work on Blue Healers. That was probably the main thing. I've got on Blue Healers that this is amazing. But, you know, it just... There just wasn't anything there, and I go, I quit. I quit probably quite a while ago now because there just wasn't anything around for me. Yeah, it was that sort of, there was a lack of the diversity. It was. It just wasn't anything. And if there was a, a disabled character on TV, like maybe one in all the shows that were on at the time, maybe one had one disabled character was always played by enabled body person. Mm. So I guess that leads into my next question is how important to you is the diversity on screen and that representation? We've obviously made a lot of progress since late 90s, early 2000s. There's been many people doing a lot of great work and it's still not probably where it should be, I reckon, in my opinion, but there's been few characters played by actors with disabilities. Where do you think we're at now and how important is it? I still think there's a way to go. But it's so much better than it was. And I did feel that it was changing, which is why I came back to it. Because it's always something I wanted to do. And I felt that there was a shift in people's thinking, especially in the media, things like that. And I remember reading an article by Dylan Alcott, of all people, saying, and this was, we're talking probably six or seven years ago, saying that there needs to be more representation of disability on screen. And I was like, yes, Dylan. Yeah. I'm, I'm your girl, Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I came back and I did get some work and I have had more work in the last few years in acting than I did previously. So there is a shift and needs to be more of a shift 
because there's still not a lot of representation, especially in mainstream TV. There's a little bit more on some of the streaming platforms. There's SBS On Demand. So the product is out there, but it needs to be more visible, especially in like some of the mainstream shows. There's just still not that representation. It's changing, but I hope it changes a bit more. I think Dylan's actually made that point to bring back to Dylan Alcott. I think I've heard him say, you've got to see it to be it. Yeah. The work you're doing, some of the acting work, who knows, there could be kids out there with disability, they might see that and they go, oh, well, Linda's doing it. So maybe I could be an actor or I could be doing whatever I want to do and I can push the boundaries of what people think we're capable of. And I think part of the representation issue is putting people with disabilities on mainstream shows so yeah. able-bodied people can, as you said at the start, like break down... Break down the barriers. Break down barriers and show that, oh, people with disabilities are just normal people. Yeah. Like, we've got so many stories to tell and they're so different. Yeah. I mean, in the last year, I played a character in a, like, a, a stage... It's not, it wasn't a stage performance, but it was, it was part of the Fringe Festival that could have been played by an able-bodied person. Yeah. There's stories to tell like that, but there's also stories to tell of the challenges we face as well, which I think comes back to having kids watching that on screen saying, yeah, I identify with that. And then the extraordinary things that we can do and the ordinary things that we can do. Yeah. There's just so many different stories and so many different layers that when I was growing up, I never saw on TV. Neither did I really. Yeah. So there was nothing, and, and even when I said I want to be an actor, people were like, well, why? I mean, you're not going to get any work, so yeah, bother. So just to it, if I had been able to see someone like me on screen, it would have been amazing. And there's a huge percentage of people with disabilities, and there's the disabled children that don't get to see people like them on screen. If we look at people with a disability in the media, being a celebrity, I guess we always go back to Dylan because he's one of the the main ones. Yeah, he's made that made that jump. Yeah, yeah, that has the voice. You've already spoken about the representation of disability and how important that is. What's important about the language that gets used around the disability space, and where do you think we're at with how disabilities, the language around it? I hope that makes sense. I still think there's a way to go. Because one of the main language discussions that I still see is people saying, oh, you're bound to a wheelchair. Oh, yeah. That's still around. I still read articles with that as one of the main talking points in the first couple of sentences. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, there's still a way to go. There's still a way to, I guess, understand disability, especially for able-bodied people. And even in our own circles. I must admit, the use of the word crips, when that became a big thing, I was like, oh. No, I'm the same. I actually felt, am I in the wrong for not being overly comfortable with that because everyone else seemed to be? I agree because I've had times where it's interesting what you said our own community is comfortable with. Some people are comfortable with. Yeah. They are empowered by using the word crip or cripple. And they're like, I'm a crip. And then like, see, oh, like, I think I'm so similar to you. I don't love that word. And I'm like, I don't get upset when I hear other people with disabilities using it. I actually feel weird using that word. 
I don't think I've really used it. I don't think I've ever really used it. Well, I have used it a couple of times as I was in a sketch comedy thing called Tales from the Creeps. So I use it in relation to that. But in terms of when I was growing up, that wasn't a good word to hear people tell you that you're that. Maybe it's just because of my generation. I don't know. But I just never really feel comfortable using that word. I think but that for some people it's taking back the power of the word. Like you said, maybe your generation when you were growing up, it was a word that was a bit taboo, but people have now gone, well, no, let's take the power back of the word and and use it. But again, I don't love it. And do you have a term that you use sort of to refer to disability or a phrase? I actually don't. People with disability, a wheelchair user, um, pretty basic stuff that I use. I don't go around using any specific word. I just, yeah, pretty general. But kudos to people who can use words like that and love using words like that. That's fantastic that they want to use that. They, you know, Everyone can use what they want to use or say what they want to say. It's just that, yeah, I just generally use pretty generic terms, I guess. But I think that's important for people without disability to hear is like, you are a wheelchair user. I'm a wheelchair user as well. But yeah, I think wheelchair bound is, is like you've already said, that's the one I go, I've heard that before. And it's especially in relation to if someone has an accident or something's happened. Yeah. And they go, oh, they're wheelchair bound now, or there is probably still that undertone of suffering yeah. and tragedy where I've also did something recently. Uh, hey, I got introduced at some, I think, a gig I did. I was speaking. And the like MC, he introduced me. He's like, oh, we've got Oliver Hunt here today. He suffers from cerebral palsy. Yeah. I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, my life can be difficult and there can be challenges. But I don't know if I'm I'm suffering. Yeah. Um, I've got a great family support network, friends. You know, I've found a way in life. And I don't know if I'm suffering. So I think that was another one that sort of got me in terms of language. It was like, oh, oh, no, that's not the word. Yeah. I guess I'll move on to my next question. You're currently working as a lived experience facilitator for the Housing Hub. Tell us about that role. What does that involve? That's my other hat in life. Tell you a little bit about the Housing Hub. It's a part of an organisation called the Summer Foundation, which some people may have heard of before. And their main priority is to get younger people out of aged care and into their own homes. So that's the background of um, the Summer Foundation. Now, the Housing Hub is basically the web- a website that lists housing for people with disabilities. So it's sort of like a realestate.com.au but for accessible housing. And one of our main focus is what's called SDA or Specialist Disability Accommodation. That's the main focus of what we do. And SDA is, I live in SDA. So to explain where I live, I live in my own apartment in the inner city of Melbourne. This apartment has been modified for me, so it suits me. The benches are at a certain height. I have a ceiling hoist. My shower is step-free. All things like this. I have assistive technology so I can open doors. I can open and close blinds, turn on lights, or by the touch of either the iPad or my phone. So SDA is really tailored for 
people with a disability. And we've got listings of SDA properties on our website. And where I come into it is that we also run capacity building workshops and webinars for people with a disability and their supporters to learn more about SDA and what their housing options are. So I'm a part of running those workshops and webinars and there's a few of us who work as lived experience facilitators. So I guess I bring my experiences to people with a disability, all their supporters, and tell them a bit about SDA so they can see what their housing options are, which I guess in the past we didn't really have great housing options. Yeah, it was either live in a group home of a organisation or, as you said, live in aged care. And, and young people in aged care, I think, is something that we all need to avoid. It's definitely not the situation we need to put young people in. It be also that if people are in danger of going into aged care, it's something that they could look at as well. Because, for example, I, I was in a great situation. I was living with my family, especially my mother, but my mother was getting older and she wouldn't have been able to support me in the way that I needed to as she got older and as I got older. And for a while then, my only options were if it happens that she couldn't support me like I needed, was a group home or aged care. Yeah. And they were my options. They were what I was looking at until SDA came along. And I guess increases that independence. How important and what does independence mean to you? Like you've already touched on how good the SDA at your apartment is and the adjustments made there. Like how has that enhanced your independence? And just tell me more about that. Let's look at before COVID because right now I'm not doing a lot. I'm quite susceptible to COVID, so I'd be in pretty big danger if I got it. But before that, it was just doing things that I wanted to, when I wanted to, and how I wanted to. It could be even like, I want this for dinner tonight, I'm going to make this, or my support workers will help me make this, or, you know, I want to go out shopping today. So let's go and do that. It's just doing what you want, how you want, and when you want, without having to worry about other people, worry about what support you may need because you do have support workers with you to do what you want to do and when you want to do. So that's what independence is for anyone. It hasn't always been that way for us. It's pretty basic, but it's something that wasn't there for us or wasn't there for for me and a few other people that I knew to be able to think that way. I think it's interesting as well that sometimes We've already touched on the disability community itself, but sometimes we put up, we're so used to having barriers in front of us or like things getting in the way and things being challenging that we almost have our own subconscious like bias and barriers to overcome and to figure out a way to push through that because we're so used to being told, no, you can't go there or no, there's no point in acting because you're not going to get any work. We have made some progress there, but I think that's something that as a community we have to fight through as people with disabilities as well. And it's also changing, I guess, our own perception and our own thought processes because, like I said, I never thought I could live independently. I thought I'd be too disabled. So when that became a possibility, I had to change my mindset 
even because it's always been something that I've been told, no, you will never have your own apartment. You just could not possibly physically survive in your own apartment, but I can't. It's just getting rid of those years of being told you can't do something as well and changing your own mindset. And once I think people realise that that's a possibility, then, you know, the sky's the limit in a lot of things. The thing I think of there from what you just said, and that's an amazing point that we have to sort of push out ourselves. Yeah. But it comes back to the models of disability. So the social model of disability, which is the model that is now more widely accepted in society, is that it's not your disability that's the problem. It's society around us and the, the barriers around us. And the great example is the introduction of SDA and, and your accessible apartment because yeah. once you put those features in place and those you make those adjustments, then your capacity improves. And I, I've done the same thing. I moved into an apartment from my home with my parents back in July last year. And yeah, you put some basic things in place. So for me, it was a couple of rails in a bathroom and I got a shower, like the glass shower screen door removed, to open up the shower. Like I got an ensuite, so I was able to get an actual bathroom door removed. That gets a bit dicey though, because I have to make sure the blinds shut when I have a shower. Otherwise, the neighbours might get a bit of a extra show. Bit of a show? Yeah, a bit of an extra show. But once you put those basic things in place, and you know, I got a tradie to come in, he put a ramp for my balcony. Yeah. And then I've been able to live here like independently since then. And yeah, I have the confidence that I have support workers coming in as well. And I think it's an important factor too, to embrace that you need. I, for a while, I struggled to embrace support workers. How's your experience been with support workers and finding good ones and that sort of thing? I've been lucky so far with my support work. I've only had support workers since I moved into my apartment. Before that, it was just mum and I. So it was entirely new experience. So I went through the process when I first moved in here. Before I moved in here, I really wanted to meet the support workers I was going to work with. When I moved into SCA, it's not always the case, there was a support company in place. So I had to use that support company. Unfortunately, they weren't great. That's a whole other thing. We would need like three hours to discuss that. But I did get to meet some of the support workers before I moved in. And I think that's so important that you do chat with the support workers before you start working with them because not only do you I think you need people who are capable of supporting you you also need people that gel with you it's like you imagine inviting someone into your home to do personal care but you don't get along it'd be horrendous yeah can you help me shower but I also don't like you and have no interest in what you have to say yeah it'd be so uncomfortable and some organisations don't take that into consideration because they say personality clashes or and things like that. Person, a support worker's personality and your personality, it doesn't matter if they don't clash. As long as they can put you on the toilet or shower you or whatever else, that's all that matters and it's not the case. No, not at all. I think that comes back to the that social model as well of that choice and control and having the ability to make our own decisions because that as you said that was the way and we've definitely moved away from that i hope and i hope if people out there listening and i hope they're in a good great situation with their support workers because i have seen it and heard stories where companies are still sort of 
that's their approach. So you just get who you're given and you have to deal with that. My support work is I don't use a company. I hire them myself either through platforms like HireUp or if they've got their own ABN, things like that. I take control of my supports now. So I only do have people that I get along with that are capable of doing what I need help with. So, you know, I take all everything into consideration now and I'm in charge. I know that not everyone would be comfortable doing that, but that's my main way of doing my supports now. It's I don't think I could go back to using a company now that now that Jeannie's out of the bottle and doing her own thing. Uh, Jeannie doesn't want to go back in the bottle. Unless you want to use the company Independence Australia. They're a great company. Yeah. Uh, reach out to them if you need support. <laughs> well, I do. I use Independence Australia all the time with my products that I need. Perfect. Nice plug in there. So you've been through a lot with your acting and employment with disability. And what would be some advice? We've already talked about the generation coming through and children with disability and representation. What would be your advice to people facing barriers and challenges with disability in their life? Don't take no for an answer because if there's something that you want, there's always a way to do it, especially now that things are changing. You don't need to take no for an answer. There will be people who will push back against you, but I say just don't give in. If it's something you really want to do in your life, then you go and do it and there will always be a way for you to do it. You can always find someone. There's many people that might say no and you can't do it, you can find someone that will say yes. Yeah, there's always that one person or even two or three who will say yes, and you'll find them. So you will find them and you will get to do what you wanted to, just don't give up. I think that's a great point. We're nearly at the end. What's next for you? You're still working with the housing hub? Yeah, I'm still doing my bits and pieces there. We're still doing our workshops and webinars. So if you do want to know a bit more about SCA, um, check out the website Housing Hub and you'll find a lot more information, events that are coming up there. So I'll be doing that. Hopefully I can get in some more acting work. I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to do that because of COVID, but hopefully something will come up. I'm always open to new things. I'm just waiting to see what happens, I guess, in my acting side of things. I just started learning Spanish. That's a new thing for this year. Oh, that's cool. Tell me about that. I actually had my first class last night. So I've been learning a little bits and pieces of Spanish and I've always wanted to learn a second language, especially European language. When I was at school, I tried doing Japanese. It wasn't very successful. So I'm giving Spanish a go. So that's new for this year. And yeah, we'll see how things turn out. So just working, doing some language and hopefully doing some acting as well. Yeah, it's all happening for you. It's amazing. I just had a thought though, when you meet someone from Europe and they're like, oh yeah, I speak English, German, French. Yeah. I speak a bit of this, a bit of that. And we're like in Australia, we're like, I speak English and that's it. I tried French at school, like probably most people did and wasn't very good at it. But um, I do, I love the idea of, learning a new language and hopefully at some point we could uh, head overseas and you'll be able to test out your Spanish. I have been to Spain before. You have been? Yeah. I've been to Barcelona and all I knew was to say I don't speak Spanish. So 
I maybe can learn a little bit more. I do. One of my support workers is from Mexico. Bit of language work with her. She's been teaching me a few things. And so now I'm just taking it next level. Have you traveled much? Like you said, you've been to Spain. No, I've only, that's the only time I've been to Europe. I went to Spain in 2000, so it's 22 years ago now, or 21, it was December 2000. And I, by that time I was travelling around Australia a lot because I was part of the Davis Cup in tennis. I don't know if you know much about Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tennis, but there's Davis Cup team. I was following them around the country. As a spectator? Part of the Fanatics, which is oh, the Australian awesome. sports sort of cheer squad. Yeah, um, yep. very big with the Davis Cup at the time. Yeah, so I was traveling around with them, and I ended up somehow going to Barcelona for the 2000 Davis Cup final. Yeah, wow. I was over there for the tennis, and I, I knew um, the guys back then. It was on um, Pat Rafter, Leighton Hewitt, John Newcomb, and Tony Roach were the captain and coach of the team. You know, all these great guys, the Woodies, um, Mark Woodford, love Mark Woodford. So, yeah, it was just a great time and I'd travel around the country and ended up going to Barcelona for the final. You got to know the team, like, personally. Yeah. Wow. We'd been with all the fanatics after ties, at the end of ties or the end of the matches, um, there would be an after party. So we'd go to that and the players were there. It was just great. And I'd know us around the grounds. I went to the Australian Open a lot, so I saw them there as well it was just a great time to be a part of that experience and sort of be part of the team I guess in a way it was great how was the access in Spain in 2000 surprisingly good it was better than Melbourne at the time at the time what really that surprises me they had accessible buses wow and it's the first time I'd seen accessible bus see I think it was 1992 they had the Olympics but they also had the Paralympics yeah. So they'd been, they'd already changed their accessibility quite a lot in Barcelona. So everywhere, except for some of the older parts, it was older parts that had the cobblestones and some steps that weren't greatly accessible. But the majority of Barcelona was so easy to get around. I was shocked. So do you use a power chair to get around? Yeah, I do. So how does that go? Because I have a manual chair, so I can transfer in and out pretty easy and get on and off. Because I've travelled overseas too and I get on and off planes all right and in and out of Ubers and stuff. And how's it travelling on a plane with the power chair? Like what goes into that? I haven't done it for a little while. But there were issues because you generally have to leave your chair pretty early in the process so they can get on a plane. And then you have to sit in one of their aisle chairs, which can be a bit of an issue because I kind of need the support and they don't have support. So that can be a little bit uncomfortable. I generally have my chairs considered fairly light. So there has been times I've been able to leave it at the boarding gate as we get on the plane because it's the lightest electric chair or power chair that you can get. And then at the time, my mother couldn't lift me, so she just lifted me onto the chair. I don't know how I'd go about it now. I haven't done any travel for years now actually on the plane so I'm not sure how it would go I have had my plane broken on my plane I don't have a plane by the way (laughs) I have had my chair broken I did get it broken between Barcelona and London 
So I got it to Heathrow Airport and my chair was in bits, especially the battery pile of it, which was an issue. I then had to spend a day or two in London at a hotel basically laying on the bed because I didn't have my chair while it got fixed. And that was an issue too because my chair is Australian. Yeah. You've got an Australian chair. It's like, yeah. I mean, I don't know what you expected. But they did end up getting fixed, but it took a little while. So there's those hurdles that you sometimes come up against. I've had it broken a couple of times, but that was the main time it got broken. Unfortunately, it was on the other side of the world. My story can't compare to that. When I went overseas the first day, so the spokes in the wheel, one of the wheels, because the cab driver just threw it. I transferred out of the yeah. chair and he just threw it in the back. Oh. And I was like, oh, mate, that's probably not ideal. And then I got out of the cab and the, all like five or six of the spokes had just bent and loosened. So then I had to, luckily I had a friend when I was, this was when I was in Los Angeles. And I had a friend and I was staying with her and I said, I need to find somewhere to fix my wheel. Like, and that was the first day. So luckily she was able to help me because I don't know where I would have been if I couldn't have got it fixed. And Did it take long to get it fixed? No, I sat in the workshop while they fixed it. It took them a half an hour. So I was very fortunate. And I think for me, when I travelled as well, like I was so nervous about, like I did put some stuff in place. I travelled five years ago. So different time than you, but you always worry about the rooms accessible and is this going to be fine? Is this going to be working? And I remember I got to Vegas. I'm like, oh yeah, I booked the accessible room. And she's like, oh yeah, I think that's fine. And I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound good. I went up the room, not accessible, tiny bathroom. So I went back down and then I saw like a different person. I think it must have been the manager. I said, oh, I thought I booked the accessible room. I asked for the accessible room. And they said, oh, no, when you put the booking through, you put that request in just request, not. So that means if we can do it, we will. Like, we, that's not a, like, direction. Oh, okay. I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? They're like, oh, well, we don't have to, like, it's not compulsory that we have to follow those requests. Okay. And I'm like, oh, so you didn't read that and think that was fairly important to do? Like, oh, yeah, sorry. But then I had to move rooms and luckily I had a good travel agent and he was able to help me out. If we can get out of this and you're listening out there and you can travel, it is doable. You just have to think it does take a bit of planning. I think the important thing for me would be just figure out what you're capable of. Yeah. And push yourself, but also understand what you are capable of. But yeah, when I was a bit younger, I think sometimes I sat back and we touched on this earlier, but may not push yourself because of the barriers we have on ourselves and the issues we face with that i would say to wrap up we're we're at the end so thank you for coming on but yeah i think for me it would be get out there and have a crack i think the sky's the limit just do what you want to do like i said you will get people to try to push you back but never give up always go for what you want that's what i say I think that's a perfect spot to wrap it up there, Belinda. So thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you, Oliver. It's been great. You've been listening to Extraordinary, a podcast where we have an honest chat and a good laugh about what it's like to live with a disability. This podcast is brought to you by Independence Australia. Independence Australia is a social enterprise providing choices and services to people living with a disability. 
To find out more about what we do, visit independenceaustralia.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Extraordinary, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Oliver Hunter, and we'll be back next episode with another Extraordinary Conversation. Extraordinary Conversation.